Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. Esther chapter 4 When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Well, this week marked a hundred years of the existence of Northern Ireland. Partition in Ireland, of course, eventually gave rise to violence. And as a, t- as a child growing up, sadly, virtually every time I heard mention of Northern Ireland was when the next news report came on about the latest act of violence, either from unionist or nationalist paramilitaries. But since 1997, there has largely been peace a peace that was secured by all parties working together. And that joint working was only possible because of mediation. 
any conflict like that where two parties are deeply hostile and very suspicious of one another needs mediation. It needs a go-between. And in the late 90s, there were a number of important go-betweens between the sides, but one of them was the then Prime Minister Tony Blair. I read a little bit of his autobiography this week. And when he was speaking about the role of mediators in Northern Ireland, he said, they act as a buffer and as a messenger between disputing parties. They help to define the issues and identify turning points. Well, today in Esther, we meet another situation where a mediator is essential. And this, as we're going to see, will point to the great need that we all have, that you have, for a mediator. More of mediation in a moment, but first up today, mourning. That's our first heading, mourning. Remember where we are in Esther, despite the fact that Esther herself, against her wishes, has been effectively sex trafficked into the king's harem and then miraculously become his wife. And despite the fact that her cousin Mordecai has foiled a plot against the king, the king's official Haman, because of his historic prejudices against God's people, has fabricated a story and persuaded the king to give an order for the extermination of all of the people of God throughout the Persian Empire. And when we say throughout the empire, remember that empire effectively covers the whole known world. And so last week we ended with nothing less than an order being given for the worldwide ethnic cleansing, the complete extermination of God's people. Remember chapter 3 verse 14? A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa was bewildered. So after this awful order is given... The king sits down for a beer. The city sits down in bewilderment. But Mordecai the Jew falls down in mourning and grief. Verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. You bet that he grieved when he heard of this order. And the grief didn't stop with Mordecai. Verse 3, in every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting, weeping and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Wailing, wearing sackcloth, sprinkling ashes, these are signs of mourning and grief. And usually they went along with crying out to God in prayer. And notice that Mordecai is shut out from the palace because you are simply not allowed anywhere near the king's presence in this kind of grief-stricken state that he's in. And so do you see the division between the empire of Xerxes 
and the people of God has never been clearer. The empire, as it were, the king and his officials, they're inside the palace, relaxing and drinking. The people of God are shut outside, grieving the genocide that's just been announced against against them. By the way, there's no doubt that, that Mordecai's reaction is the right one. When God's people face persecution, there is time. It is time for mourning and lament. When we see the state of our world more generally, there is a right place for grief. When we see people facing judgment, deep sorrow is the right response. I wonder if we respond that way when we see the persecution of God's people around the world or just the general state that sin has left our world in. When we think of other people heading to judgment, God's judgment, do we mourn? Do we grieve? Do we lament? Do we feel the weight of that? Anyway, back in Esther, God's people and the empire of the world seem very separate now. They're in the palace, God's people locked outside. Haman's there in luxury, Mordecai wailing in grief. There's the empire of the world and the people of God. It couldn't be clearer. But caught between the two is Esther. So often in in the early part of this book, that's where we find her. Caught between two worlds, sitting on the fence, if you like. Caught between the lines. Remember, she's the girl with two names. She has a Persian name and a Hebrew name. And yet she's a foreigner in Persia, but has never lived in Israel. The question implicit in the text is, who is she? Where does she fit? With the people of God or with the empire of the world? Even her reaction initially puts her somewhere between the two. To begin with, Esther is sad, but she doesn't share Mordecai's grief. Verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of the sackcloth. Now, she's in distress, but she thinks perhaps the situation can be patched up with a new outfit. But it's not so easy. Uh, Mordecai refuses uh, and and Esther needs more information. She's actually still in the dark about the complete horror of the situation at this stage. And so Hathak, verse 6, who is the go-between, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their their annihilation, which had been published in in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And so now here it is. Esther is in full possession of the facts. It's laid out for her in black and white. The perilous situation of her people And Mordecai also tells Esther about the need for mediation. That's our second point. Mourning, secondly, mediation. Look at the end of verse 8 now. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy 
and plead with him for her people. So in this grim situation, Mordecai sees a possible solution, a possible way out. Esther. She could go in and speak to the king on behalf of God's people. And despite his grief, Mordecai clearly has faith that God will rescue his people from this awful situation they face. We can see that if we skip down to verse 13. Park the story for a moment and look at verse 14, I'm sorry. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Isn't that interesting? See, despite the fact that that the powerful world empire is set against God's people, despite the fact that the day of their demise has literally been put in the calendar, and despite the fact that God's people really are pretty weak, vulnerable, and defenseless in this whole situation, Mordecai still believes that by one way or another, God will save them. Why? Why? Well, quite simply because that's what God has promised. Way back in Genesis, God's promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be a great and numerous nation, not that they they would be wiped out. Later, his promise to King David was that a descendant would reign on his throne in the line of David forever and ever, not that his people would be wiped out. And Mordecai clearly takes God at his word. And trusts his promises. Which of course raises the question for us. Do we do the same? When God says to us that Christ is enough. That the salvation he has won on the cross is, is enough and is the only way. Do we believe him? Do we trust in his word? When Christ tells us how we should live do we believe him do we not only hear his word but obey it do we trust what he says anyway back in Esther she is not at all sure about Mordecai's proposal especially if this scheme to rescue God's people has to begin with her she is under no illusions about the serious risk Mordecai is asking her to take going into the king's presence she fires back verse 11 all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has but one law that they will be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives but 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king Translation, Mordecai, you've got to be kidding. The king's ego is so great that uninvited guests frequently meet with a sticky end. Mordecai will know this. He knows the court. He's perfectly aware of the risk that he's asking Esther to take. But the reply he sends back is very striking. He says, verse 13, do not think... That because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, father's family, will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now at one level, Mordecai is just making a fairly straightforward point here. He's saying, they're coming for the Jews, Esther. And so ultimately, they'll come for you. So your life is already at risk, Esther. But there's something deeper here as well. Mordecai is challenging her. He's saying, whose side are you on? Where do you fit in all of this, Esther? Are you a daughter of Persia or a child of God? Do you belong to the empire of the world or the kingdom of God's people? You see, there are two sides to God's covenant promises. We've already seen that that Mordecai trusts in those promises. We've already seen the positive side of those promises, that God has promised to protect his people. Mordecai believes that. But the covenant of God doesn't just come with blessings, it also comes with curses. There is safety promised to those who belong to him, but no safety is guaranteed for those who don't. Remember? Those who bless you, I will bless, says the Lord. But he also says, those who curse you, I will curse. However things look to the naked eye, however powerful the world seems, the right side to be on and the safe place to be is always with the Lord. And so Mordecai is pushing and challenging Esther to say, which side are you on? It may seem safe to be on the side of the empire of the world, but Esther, that is in fact the dangerous place to be because the empire of the world is ranged against the kingdom of God and God's kingdom will not fail and fall. The safe place to be, no matter how small and weak and vulnerable it may seem, is to be with the Lord and his people. Esther, which side are you on? And friends, as you watch tonight, the question is the same for you. Which side are you on? And are you attempting to have a foot in both worlds? Esther found that wasn't possible. Maybe you're watching tonight and you're not a Christian or you're not sure. You're just looking into these things. Welcome. Thank you for watching. It's great to have you with us. Will you see the choice we all face? To remain with the world or to be part of God's kingdom. How is that possible? Well, we're coming to that in a moment. That's our third point. Uh, We've had mourning. uh, We've had mediation. And thirdly, the message. The message. I I mean that in various ways. Most straightforwardly, there's the message that Esther sends back to Mordecai. And in that message, you see the decision that she makes. She will go to the king. She's for the Lord. She will speak for him and for her people. And we see that the moment that decision is made, that there's a change in Esther. For the first time in the book, she now gives orders to Mordecai. And from this point on in the book, she's often referred to as Queen Esther. 
which is a hint, I think, that there's a change in her. A transformation comes when we choose to follow the Lord. The message she gives is this, verse 16. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She will go. And she will take a message to the king. She will speak a message in defense of her people. But the question for us tonight is, well, okay, what's the message for us? What's the message for us in all of this? Now, at this point, it is very tempting to see Esther as an example of how we should behave. Now, there's some truth in that, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. That There is a link from Esther to us. She is an example for us. But first, there's another link that we must make. We're going to look as we finish at two kinds of courage. First of all, the courage of Christ, our mediator. Now, whatever role we have in being courageous for God, and we do have a role, we are coming back to that, the scale of things here in Esther should give us a clue that, that this, uh, the mediation that Esther brings points first to someone else. Neither you or I is going to be in a position where we get to mediate to rescue the whole people of God. No, who in the scriptures is the mediator who rescues the whole people of God? It's Christ. Jesus himself. Esther, in some ways, here is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. What does that mean? He's the go-between. Jesus comes from the Father. He steps down onto earth, even down into death, even down into death on a cross. Why? For us. He stands between the Father and his people, and he pays for our sin on the cross. With courage, he pays the ultimate price, his own life. Not just a grim and gruesome death, not just the physical agony, but the much greater agony of bearing our sin and the judgment it deserved. Christ is our mediator. We were heading to judgment. We were in dire straits, in great difficulty. Heading to God's judgment and to hell with nothing we could do to rescue ourselves. We, like the people in Esther, were weak and vulnerable and powerless. We needed a mediator and at just the right time. The Father sent the Son, Christ, who willingly came to stand in the gap, to be our mediator, to pay for our sin and to bring us back to God and rescue us from judgment. Esther points First and foremost, and most of all, to the courage of Christ who went to the cross for us. But having made that most important link, Esther is also an example for us. Again, don't be fooled by the fact that she was the queen. She herself was in great danger, vulnerable, and in many ways weak. And yet God had placed her where he placed her for such a time 
as this. And with God, there are no accidents. And that means he has placed us where he has has placed us, quite deliberately, for such a time as this. The neighbors that you have are no accident. Your friends and your family, it's no accident that, that they are your friends and your family. The place you live, the house you have, the street you're on, the friends and acquaintances and colleagues at work, the opportunities that are around you, none of it is any accident. God has placed us all where he's placed us for such a time as this. And like Esther, if we are following Jesus, our great mediator who's paid for our sins, he calls us to courage. It takes courage, doesn't it, to speak out for Jesus. It takes courage to share the gospel with a friend. It takes courage to, to tell your story of how Jesus has worked in your life. Takes courage to stand for truth at work when perhaps your boss is pressuring you to tell a lie. Takes courage to live a holy life pleasing to God, standing on his authority, the authority of Scripture, in a world that increasingly has turned away from that, in our nation at least. Jesus calls us to courage, and he's placed us where we are. For such a time as this. How will we respond? Whose side will we be on? If we are in Christ. If we have benefited from the courage of Christ at the cross. Will we now live for him courageously? In the ways that God is telling us. And in the places that God has put us. Let's pray together shall we? Perhaps we can have a moment of quiet reflection. It's good to reflect on the place that God has put you. And the things that he would have you do. The people with whom he'd have you share the gospel. The ways in which we're called to be different and with courage to stand out. Let's reflect on these before the Lord. Father, as we look to Esther, and more than that, as we look to Christ our great mediator who bears our sins away. Lord, we pray that you would inspire our hearts with courage in the power of your spirit to live, to act, and to speak for Jesus, in whose name we pray. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon us and remain with us this day and forevermore. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.